Hello and welcome to Battlecast. I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and tonight we're talking about one of the most famous Scotsmen to have ever lived. We're talking about William Wallace. He's a mysterious figure. Most of what we know was written by his enemies. But I've gone deep down the rabbit hole to find every shred of detail that we know about his life, and I'm going to tell it to you tonight. It's an epic tale complete with guerrilla warfare, vicious torture, and the making and breaking of several kingdoms. Many houses will rise and many will fall. It's like Game of Thrones, but it all really happened. But before we can get into that, I've got to thank Brigham from Salt Lake City for buying us around. And if you want to buy us around, head on over to thebattlecast.com and hit the Make a Donation button. And now, the complete story of William Wallace and the Battle for Scotland. And Brigham, all I can say to you is... In memory of our God, our religion, and freedom, and our peace, our wives, and our children. You know what I'm talking about. Now the story of William Wallace begins on March 18, 1286. The Kingdom of Scotland is at peace and has been at peace for decades, ruled by the steady hand of King Alexander III. On March 18th, King Alexander was having a few drinks when his thoughts turned to the delights of his beautiful young wife. Alexander couldn't get her off his mind. The only problem was, she was 22 miles away and the king had been drinking all afternoon, but that didn't matter. As happens to so many of us, his lust overcame his reason and he decided to ride the 22 miles to his queen in the pitch blackness of midnight, a bottle of mead in his hand. He never made it. A modern historian explains what happened, quote, As he and their companions made their way along a winding clifftop path above the Firth of Forth, the king became separated from his attendants. His horse stumbled and threw him, and in the morning he was found on the shore below the cliffs with a broken neck. Scotland was without a king, end quote. Okay, so the king is dead. Well, we can just promote the next person in line, right? And things should be okay because Alexander has three kids from his first marriage, two of them male. One of them can be king, but you're forgetting. This is the pre-modern world where the miracle of modern medicine hasn't been invented yet. A time when death from disease was always near. Child mortality was rampant. And by this time, all three of Alexander's immediate heirs are dead. However, there was one more person who could inherit the throne, a granddaughter. She was Margaret, the maid of Norway, daughter of Eric II, king of Norway. She was only three years old at the time. A regency council was hastily scrambled together by the Scottish aristocracy. They would rule in Margaret's stead in the council until she came of age. It wasn't ideal, but it wasn't the end of the world either. And it wasn't the end of an independent kingdom of Scotland, which everybody wanted. So none of the noblemen sitting on the council at that time could have known it, but the death of Alexander would set loose a chain of events that would forever change the course of Scottish history and the Scottish people. Echoes are still felt today. The Scottish National Party very nearly took Scotland out of the United Kingdom in 2014. Over 1,600,000 Scotsmen and women voted to leave the United Kingdom, about 45% of the total number of votes. This election cost millions of pounds to even conduct, let alone campaign for. The death of Alexander set about numerous wars between Scotland and England. It was the ultimate cause of tens of thousands of deaths, the cause of widows, the cause of oppression, all because a guy had too much to drink and fell down a cliff. Magnus Magnuson explains the importance of the death of Alexander like this, quote, The death of Alexander III in March 1286 was a devastating blow for Scotland. 
But it is only in hindsight that we can see just how devastating it was. The immediate effect was simply a dynastic crisis. Because the sole heir of Alexander's body and the only surviving descendant in the direct line of the Mac Malcolm dynasty was his granddaughter Margaret, the maid of Norway, who had been acknowledged as heir presumptive in 1284. To fill the sudden vacuum in the business of government, a committee of six guardians was elected at an assembly or parliament of the community of the realm at Scone the month after Alexander's death. The guardians comprised two bishops, two earls, and two barons. The Bruces, although a powerful family in the southwest of Scotland, were not represented. End quote. In October 1286, Margaret was formally crowned Queen of Scotland. Now, the Scottish regents immediately began negotiations with Edward I, the King of England. Edward was Margaret's uncle and one of the most powerful men in Europe at the time. If Margaret was going to have a peaceful reign, Edward would need to guarantee it. So the King of Norway also took an interest in securing his daughter's rule in Scotland, and consequently, he also entered into trilateral discussions with England and Scotland. In July 1290, all the sides agreed to a settlement which would secure Margaret's place on the throne and Scotland's peace during her reign. The settlement centered on Margaret's betrothment to Edward I's infant son, in other words, an arranged marriage between pre-kindergarten toddlers. Everyone seemed happy with the deal, and the treaty was signed with much backslapping and smiles all around, but there's always the seeds of danger and the flower of peace. A modern historian explains the impact of the treaty, which was called Burgum. Quote, the marriage settlement guaranteed that Scotland would remain a separate and independent kingdom. The treaty stipulated that the Scottish realm was to remain separate and divided from England according to its rightful boundaries, freeing itself and without subjection, and that its rights, laws, liberties, and customs were wholly and inviolably preserved for all time. Should Edward and Margaret die childless, her kingdom would pass to her nearest heir wholly, freely, absolutely, and, quote, without any subjection, end quote. That was the intention anyway. But Edward's negotiators added the ominous words, saving always the right of our Lord King and of any other whomsoever that has pertained to him before the time of the present agreement or which in any just way ought to pertain to him in the future. End quote. So what's that mean? Well, it means that King Edward is retaining a claim on the Scottish throne. And King Edward, on ratifying the treaty, insisted on appointing the new Bishop of Durham as his lieutenant in Scotland on behalf of the royal pair, which includes his infant son, and required the Scottish guardians to obey the bishop. In the event, the appointment seems to have been largely ignored in Scotland. Nobody in Scotland was obeying the bishop. In May 1290, Edward I sent a great ship from Yarmouth to fetch his future daughter-in-law from Norway. King Eric of Norway insisted instead on using a Norwegian vessel, however, and the English ship returned without her. In September 1290, the Maid of Norway set sail from Bergen en route for Leith. It was a wild, storm-tossed voyage, and the ship was driven far off course to Orkney. Margaret's health, never robust, broke under the strain, and she was seized with illness at sea, according to the Norwegian bishop who accompanied her. She was carried ashore, more dead than alive, and there she died. Her body was taken back to Bergen, where she was buried beside her mother in Christkirk in Bergen. She was not yet eight years old and had been Queen of Scots for four years and six months. With her sad little death, the Mac Malcolm dynasty came to an end. 
But a new dynasty rose to fill the power vacuum. Now that the queen was dead, the terms of the treaty, the one the kings of Norway, Scotland, and England had all spent four years completing, the cornerstone of peace on the British Isles, that treaty was nullified. Diplomats solemnly shook their heads and blinked when they read the news. The impossible had become possible. The plans of men were as broken and sick as Queen Margaret's little dead body. It was September 1290. Now there was a kingdom without a king, a throne without a master, a land without an heir, and there were many men with claims to the throne. But there was one who overshadowed all the others. He was Edward I, the man who became known as Malus Scotorum, the Hammer of the Scots. Magnus Magnuson describes Edward I this way, quote, When the crisis of secession struck Scotland in 1290, Edward was 50 years old, a tall, handsome, forceful, dominating figure experienced in all the arts of war and peace, a charming friend and a menacing foe. He was totally committed to strengthening the kingdom he had inherited in 1274. He reorganized the financial system, the army, and the feudal holdings of his barons. He also concentrated on extending his western frontier. In two blood-drenched campaigns, he annexed North and West Wales. This was the man who would become Scotland's most implacable enemy, but whose enmity, paradoxically, would unite Scotland as a nation." End quote. Fiona Watson, senior lecturer in history at Stirling University, makes no secret of her admiration for Edward I, the arch-villain for most patriotic Scotsmen. Quote, I'm absolutely fascinated by him. Despite what's been written about him, I think people always tend to admire him, grudgingly or otherwise. He was an incredibly impressive person, and still is to this day, despite any revisionist ideas we may have. From Scotland's point of view, it was very unfortunate that we had a dynastic crisis at a time when England had such a dynamic king. I think that it's one of the biggest tragedies of the period, end quote. But Edward wasn't alone in his claim to the Scottish throne. Twelve other men, thirteen in total if you include Edward, sought to claim the kingdom for their own. It wasn't talk that would ultimately decide, although of course there is a place for diplomacy, but the ultimate decider in our clash of kings would be power. The one who could force the others to submit would be king and none other. Contemporary people refer to the 13 men competing for the Scottish throne as the competitors. And other than Edward, there were two competitors who really mattered. They were John Balliol, Lord of Galloway, and Robert the Bruce, now in his 80s, the fifth Lord of Annandale, and the grandfather of the future king. John Balliol was descended from a Picardy nobleman who had been a landowner in England under William Rufus and whose son Guy came to Scotland in the reign of David I. Robert the Bruce, however, was descended from an old Normandy family named de Bru, who were given lands in North Yorkshire by Henry I. The family came to Scotland in about 1120, when Robert the Bruce was granted lordship of Annandale as a military fief. Robert de Bru was the ancestor of a long line of Bruce lords of Annandale, most of whom were called Robert, which gets super confusing. Now, Robert the Bruce, the competitor, the one who's trying to gain the Scottish throne right now, could claim a greater nearness of degree to the Mac Malcolms than his rival John Balliol. He was the grandson, on his father's side, of Isabella, the younger daughter of David, Earl of Huntingdon. Balliol, the younger of the two men, nevertheless had the senior claim. He was the great-grandson, on his mother's side, of Margaret, the eldest daughter of Earl David. 
So both had a legitimate blood claim to the throne is what I'm getting at. Now the competition for the throne had come to be known as the Great Cause. For a while it threatened to degenerate into civil war between supporters of the two main factions. Now the most powerful family in Scotland at the time were the Comines. John Comine, who was himself one of the lesser competitors, was Balliol's brother-in-law, and there was no love lost between the Comines and the Bruces. The guardians approached Edward I to arbitrate between the claimants. Edward was more than willing to undertake the task of an honest broker, and he summoned the Scotsmen to a parliament to be held on May 6, 1291, at Norham Castle, the great stronghold of the Bishop of Durham on the English side of the Tweed River, which separates Scotland from England. The Scots stopped on the northern side of the border, wanting Edward to come over to their side. Edward refused point blank. He'd gone through quite a bit of trouble planning a welcome party for the Scotsmen, and he wasn't about to fall into someone else's trap. Instead, he told the dumbfounded Scotsmen that they must acknowledge Edward as the Lord Superior of Scotland before he would settle the secession crisis. He was acting the part of a sovereign, a commanding judge, not a pleading mediator. They were given three weeks to make up their minds. Now, the Scottish nobles didn't know which way to look when they heard the news, but most of them started falling in line with Edward's overlordship. One of them was Robert the Bruce. A modern historian picks up the tale, quote, Robert the Bruce accepted Edward's overlordship and his right to legal possession of feudal property of the kingdom. Others followed this lead. A few days later, John Balliol was the last of the competitors to accept the inevitable. On June 12th, the Scottish nobles finally came to Norham, and the lengthy process of adjudication began. Negotiations dragged on, but the 13-man list of competitors was narrowed down to just two men, Robert Bruce and John Balliol. A panel of 104 auditors was appointed, 40 each nominated by Balliol and Bruce, and 24 from Edward's council. Eventually, on November 6, 1292, the court adjudicated in favor of Balliol. Indeed, 29 of Bruce's own auditors voted for Balliol. Primogenitor, it was decided, was more significant than proximity. Two days after the court's verdict was announced, Bruce formally transferred his claim to his son and heirs so that it would not be lost after his death. He retired to his castle and took no further part in politics. He actually died in 1295. His son, the confusingly named Robert Bruce, he had the exact same name as his father, the Earl of Carrick, in turn surrendered his earldom to his own son, Robert Bruce, who had the same exact name as both his grandfather and his father. He would go on to become the future king, the one you see at the end of the movie Braveheart. But at this time, he was just 18 years old. The Bruce's claim to the throne was anything but dead, is what I'm getting at with all this. In November 17, 1292, in the Great Hall of Berwick Castle, Edward formally accepted the decision of the auditors and chose John Balliol as the next king of the Scots. Next day, in the chancel, of the church in Norham, he accepted the homage or feudal allegiance of Balliol for the kingdom of Scotland. Now the kingdom of Scotland was formally subjected to English dominance in a feudal relationship. Three days later, after paying homage to Edward, Balliol left for Scone, where he was inaugurated as King of Scots on the Stone of Scone inside the Abbey Church on November 30th, 1292. It was St. Andrew's Day. 
It was to be the last time a king of Scots would sit on the royal stone at Scone. Within a month, Balliol and the many Scottish nobles had to travel to Newcastle to swear fealty yet again for his kingdom to King Edward. It was the start of an unhappy four-year reign which ended in humiliation for King John Balliol and disaster for Scotland and left Balliol with the jeering name of Tomb Tabard, which means empty tunic, with which he's come down in history, end quote. Now, little is known about Balliol's reign, but what is known is that the nobles, who had become accustomed to doing whatever the hell they wanted for the past five years, continued to exercise a leading role in the realm. Parliament was constantly encroaching on the king's powers, but then again, so was Edward. Edward humiliated King John at every turn. He usurped the right to hear appeals from Scottish judgments, and King John was even ordered by the Sheriff of Northumberland to appear before a court in London to pay for a wine bill left unpaid by Alexander III. In 1294, Edward ordered King John to raise troops for Edward's war with France. This was too much, and the unruly Scottish Parliament, who were de facto rulers in Scotland, made their rule de jure. They formalized it. Magnus Magnuson explains the importance of Parliament's decision. In July 1295, a meeting of Parliament at Scone decided to put the government into the hands of a council of twelve made up of four bishops, four earls, and four barons, a new form of guardianship in effect. John Balliol remained king but was effectively sidelined. The real power behind the governance of Scotland was in the hands of Balliol's main supporters, the Camine family. In October, the hard-line Council of Twelve decided to look for help abroad. In Paris that month, they concluded a mutual defense treaty with Edward's arch-enemy Philippe IV of France. The 1295 Treaty of Paris guaranteed that Scotland would maintain hostile pressure on England in return for military aid from France should Scotland be invaded. The treaty was ratified by the full community of the realm in February 1296. It was an implicit declaration of war on England, and in the fall of 1295, Edward I reacted predictably. He put the north of England on a war footing. The battle for Scotland had begun. It was the start of what became known as the Wars of Independence. In England, these wars are called the Scottish Wars. On March 11th, the Scottish nobles cobbled together an army and ordered them to assemble at Cadden Lee. The Bruce family refused to attend this gathering, and so King John declared Bruce's land forfeit. If the Scottish Parliament succeeded, Robert the Bruce's land, his money, everything he had would be confiscated. He would be nothing. This is the way families rise and fall. It all hangs on one decision. Meanwhile, Edward I assembled a massive army at Newcastle, intent on invading Scotland and asserting his authority by right of arms. Edward's army dwarfed the Scottish one. It comprised over 4,000 cavalry and coupled this with 25,000 infantry soldiers. For the time, it was a steamroller of an army. And on March 18th, Edward's army moved to the frontier borderland on the River Tweed. It was here that Robert Bruce, along with numerous more Scottish noblemen, renewed their loyalty to King Edward with this pledge, quote, I shall be faithful and loyal and shall maintain faith and loyalty to King Edward, King of England, and to his heirs in matters of life and limb and of earthly honor against all mortal men. And never shall I bear arms for anyone against him or his heirs, end quote. It was the Scots who struck the first blow. On March 26th, 
The day after the ceremony, a strong Scottish force led by John Comyne the Younger attacked Carlisle Castle, which was held by the dispossessed Lord of Annandale and his son, the college-aged Robert Bruce. But Carlisle, with its formidable fortifications, was too strong to be stormed, and the attack was repulsed with little difficulty. King Edward now unleashed the counter-invasion he had been planning all winter. He moved across the border at Coldstream and on March 30th launched a ferocious assault on the royal town of Berwick, which was then one of the wealthiest commercial towns in Scotland. The timber palisade walls of the town offered no defense, and Berwick was sacked with terrible brutality. It was an orgy of violence, a hymn to the devil. The inhabitants were massacred without mercy. Women and children fell as well as men. The records are few, but one novelist describes the sect this way, quote, The women were raped next to the dead bodies of their five-year-old children. Many of them didn't even feel the assault. They were numb uncaring at what happened next, and the numbness was a gift because what happened next was terrible. Children were cast into flames, women's heads were smashed in with rocks, holes where noses should be, empty circles where eyes should be, human heads transfigured into human jack-o'-lanterns. Most of the men fell in the fight. The wounded were hastily dispatched without malice, the way veteran hospital workers nimbly and calmly burned the amputated limbs of patients in modern hospitals joking and talking about the game as they leisurely throw in the human limbs of diabetes patients. But some men were exposed to the enemy's malice. They became part of a human death carnival. Here, cadavers were used for arrow practice. A few stalls down, a budding artist turned a cadaver into modern art. Some were tortured in the rush search for hidden valuables. Fingers were smashed. Feet were smashed. Many survivors were maimed. There was little pity in the hearts of the English that day. There was little common humanity or common religious feeling or common anything. On that day on the streets of Berwick, man was a wolf to man. The English hearts were transformed inside their chest into wolf hearts. They were secret werewolves. The entire population of the city ceased to exist. End quote. Of the town's 12,500 inhabitants, only 5,000 survived the slaughter. The wholesale destruction of Berwick quickly became a byword for savagery, the ultimate war atrocity. The castle held out, however, until the garrison, commanded by Sir William Douglas, who offered himself as a hostage, were promised truce and safe conduct from the burning village. As we noted two months ago during the Boer War, and as Dennis Prager and Joseph Telushkin make clear in their book Why the Jews, it's not the elite who suffer most in war. Often it is the weakest, the women and the children, the ignorant and the old. The strong can sometimes make a deal. The weak get nothing. And Europeans wonder why Americans cherish their Second Amendment friends. The Second Amendment is the foundation and font of all the others. Anyway... The Scots retaliated with an equally savage raid deep into Northumberland on April 8th, burning villages and abbeys all the way to Hexham. This raid was accompanied by gratuitous cruelty, including the burning alive of school children in Hexham. Edward I ignored it all. He stayed on in Berwick 
for the next month, supervising the rebuilding of the town and its flimsy defenses and repopulating it with English citizens. The Scots raiding force left England and moved back across the border and up to English-held Dunbar on Scottish territory, where the castle was opened up to them by the governor's wife, the Countess of March. Part of the English army, under the command of John de Warren, ironically John Balliol's brother-in-law, was sent north to retake the castle at Dunbar. The English laid siege to the fortress on April 25th. Two days later, the main body of King John's army, under the command of John Comine, the Red Comine, made an attempt to raise the siege, but it was no match for the heavy English cavalry and the disciplined men at arms. The Scottish cavalry fled the field, and the foot soldiers were cut down just as easily as you mow your lawn. The Scotsmen fell like leaves in an autumn storm, such a waste of life. And you listening to this, these are your ancestors, many of you. Countless Americans are descended from Scotsmen. It might be your blood that fell in the streets of Berwick or in the fields outside Dunbar. The castle at Dunbar promptly surrendered, and many of the leading barons of Scotland were taken captive and sent to rot in the Tower of London. It was the end of the rebellion. Scottish resistance simply collapsed after Dunbar Castle surrendered. The castles of Roxburgh, Edinburgh, Stirling, and Perth followed suit. Scotland lay paralyzed and helpless before King Edward. John Balliol sent a letter to Edward in Perth, suing for peace, but Edward would be satisfied with nothing less than unconditional surrender. On July 2, 1296, Balliol met Bishop Beck of Durham at Kincardine, castle where he issued his document of surrender this is part of it quote seeing that we have by evil and false counsel and our own folly grievously offended and angered our lord edward by the grace of god king of england therefore we acting under no constraint and of our own free will have surrendered to him the land of scotland and all its people end quote a week later, on July 8th, at a special ceremony, Balliol formally resigned his kingdom to Edward and was subjected to the ultimate humiliation. He was stripped of his crown, scepter, ring, and girdle, and the red and gold royal insignia were ripped from his surcoat, giving rise to that nickname of Tomb to Bar, the Empty Tunic. He and his son were sent into captivity in the Tower of London, along with the last of his supporters. Balliol was soon moved to more comfortable housing, and after three years... He was allowed to retire to his family's estates in Picardy in France, where he died in 1313. Compare that to the fate of the women and children of Berwick. Then Edward set out to humiliate the Scottish people, purging it of its symbols and history, ransacking both gold and silver, along with the archives and any cultural memories they may have had. A modern historian explains what happened. Quote, King Edward ransacked the country systematically and purposefully. The great seal of Scotland was ceremoniously broken in two. The stone of scone, the inaugural stone of the King of Scots, was removed and sent south to Westminster Abbey. The state archives were packed in containers and shipped out of the country. Edward also ordered the removal of the Scottish regalia, the crown, scepter, ring, and royal robe, and the precious relic of Scotland's only royal saint, the Black Rood of St. Margaret, it was never seen in Scotland again. Edward I left his newly acquired kingdom in the hands of the Earl of Surrey as a governor and Hugh de Cressingham as treasurer. An English bank was established at Berwick to tax the country. English sheriffs were appointed the length and breadth of the country. English soldiers garrisoned the major castles. The subjugation was complete. It had taken Edward I only five months to achieve a total victory, end quote.
Then King Edward assembled all the nobility and high clergy of Scotland into one grand parliament. Every lord, earl, bishop, and leading citizen was there. They all had to swear loyalty to Edward. They all bent the knee to his power, genuflected before him. Robert the Bruce bent the knee. John Balliol bent the knee. The bishop of the church bent the knee. But there was one man who never bent the knee. There was one man who stood for what he believed come what may. His name is not on the document recognizing King Edward's rule of Scotland. His knee never bent. He would be hunted. He would be dogged. Traitors would ever seek to kiss his cheek and collect their 30 pieces of silver. His legs would be cut off. His noble back would be broken. His handsome proud face would be carved with pain. But his knee never bent. His name was William Wallace. And who was William Wallace? Unfortunately, there's little known about his early life. Many men claim that he was six foot five inches tall, but we have no good records of that. There are sculptures and paintings of him throughout Scotland. We've got a lot of them up on the website. But these are all rendered from the artist's imagination, which shouldn't bother us. The iconography of Jesus, the idols of Athena, were these based on any actual image of the people they represent? But a good artist can show the character of a man in his face, and we know the unrelenting character of William Wallace. The face on the statue may be different from his, but the steel conveyed in the statue, that belonged to William. Some say the sword displayed at the National Wallace Monument is Wallace's own sword. There are many who dispute this claim. So what do we know about Wallace? Well, I'll let the men who have devoted their adult life into researching every record and detail of his life and times describe him. Here's Tom Cowan. William Wallace was probably one of the greatest Scotsmen who ever lived, not only for himself, not only for his lifetime, but for what he became. The mythos of Wallace is just as important as what the man himself achieved. He is a man that kissed the folk soul of Scotland, end quote. The poet William Woodsworth described him like this, quote, I could record how Wallace fought for Scotland, left the name of Wallace to be found like a wild flower all over his dear country, left the deeds of Wallace like a family of ghosts to people the steep rocks and river banks, her natural sanctuaries, with a local soul of independence and stern liberty, end quote. Now, I've read a lot of books about Wallace, and one of the best is William Wallace by Chris Brown, and because he is so familiar with every record and story regarding Wallace, no historian can draw a picture of Wallace's early life in detail. But what we do know is the broad strokes. This is how Brown paints Wallace in his history. Quote, Wallace was part of the nobility, minor and obscure nobility, but nobility nonetheless. The society Wallace grew up in was essentially a feudal one. The king was certainly the top branch of the feudal tree, and to a great extent kings did depend on the support of the great lords or magnates. The magnate class included the earls and bishops, clearly denoted by their titles as superior members of the community, but it also included some great barons and heads of religious houses who did not, in a legal sense, enjoy a greater status than other barons or prelates, but whose wealth, influence, or extent of property brought them into the magnate group. In a sense, each of these men had a personal relationship with the crown, and most of the temporal magnates held their property from the king in exchange for a variety of judicial and administrative obligations and for military service. As a younger son from a modest estate, William Wallace might conceivably have served in the infantry, had he not made a career of military leadership. 
However, his social status would more likely have led him to serve as a man-at-arms. Although the rank and file of major armies consisted of close combat infantry, the majority of warfare in Scotland as elsewhere at this time was conducted by heavy cavalry. The reasons for this are wide-ranging. Partly it was a matter of economics. Although men-at-arms were expensive to train and support, even a modest force of them, particularly one with the possession of the local castles, could dominate a relatively large area and provide a reasonably imposing presence in the community. Being mounted, men-at-arms could respond to situations quickly, whether to intervene or to escape a larger force, but the social factors are perhaps the most significant. The men who were wealthy enough to support themselves as men-at-arms were also the men whose lifestyle afforded them the time and opportunity to learn and maintain the relevant skills. Further, since these men provided a focus of political administration and therefore of allegiance in their localities, they were, in a sense, representative of the will of the community. So William Wallace was a lesser noble. He could afford extensive military training. He was a mounted warrior, a man at arms. Walter Bower, in his Scotochronicon, written in the 1440s, had access to traditional oral tales with which he embellished his historical narrative. It is in Bower that the heroic legend of Wallace first emerges. Wallace as the great warrior, Wallace the patriot, Wallace the generous friend of the oppressed, Wallace the man successful in everything. Here's how Bower introduces Wallace in his medieval history. Quote, in 1297, the famous William Wallace, the hammer of the English, the son of the noble knight, Malcolm Wallace, raised his proud head. He was a tall man with body of a giant, cheerful in appearance with agreeable features, broad-shouldered and big-boned, with belly in proportion and lengthy flanks, pleasing in appearance but with a wild look, broad in the hips with strong arms and legs, a most spirited fighting man with all his limbs very strong and firm. And when Wallace was a young knight, he killed the sheriff of Lanark, an Englishman, who was dexterous and powerful in the use of arms. And from that time, therefore, there gathered to his side like a swarm of bees, all those who were bitter in their outlook and oppressed by the burden of servitude under the intolerable rule of English domination, and he was made their leader." Quote. There are many legends about the early campaigns of Wallace. All we really know is that he was an elected leader of men. This means he was such a good military leader that many of his own men chose to follow him rather than the many other noble warriors who inhabited Scotland at that time. But our first verifiable exploit of Wallace is actually quite similar to what happened in the film Braveheart. He attacked and assassinated an unjust English sheriff. Chris Brown explains, quote, the earliest recorded operation of William Wallace was the murder of the sheriff at Lanark, Sir William Hasselrig, allegedly in revenge for the murder of Wallace's mistress. By May of 1297, Wallace was the leader with Sir William Douglas of a small group of men-at-arms. These Scotsmen made a descent on the English knight William Ormsby while he was actually opening a court session at Scone. Ormsby escaped, but there was no longer any question that a revolt against the English occupation was underway. By the middle of 1297, all of Scotland was boiling over into revolt, a revolt that threatened to spill into England itself. In August 1297, Wallace combined his small army of hardcore fighters with the army of Andrew Murray. Murray was a nobleman who never accepted English rule, Pete Armstrong provides this description of Murray and the other leaders of the Scottish uprising. Quote, 
Early in 1297, Andrew Murray escaped from Chester Castle, where he had languished since his capture at Dunbar. And he returned to his family's lands in the northeast of Scotland, where he raised the standard of revolt. As the son of a high-ranking knight, Andrew Murray was a natural leader of the Northern Rebellion, but there were others too, notably Alexander Pilch, a Burgess of Inverness, who joined forces with Murray as his lieutenant. It is mainly from letters sent to Edward I from his diligent and faithful friends in the north that we are able to piece together a few details of the rebellion. Their letters told the king of the rapidly deteriorating situation in the north and begged for his assistance against Murray and the very large body of rogues he led. Murray's early attempts to take the English-held castle on the shore of Loch Ness Lake was foiled by a spirited defense, but as the strength of his following increased the castles of Iverness, Elgin and Banff fell to him, and by early August he had practically swept the English out of Murray and the country north of the mountainous month. An English official wrote this to King Edwards in the summer of 1297 quote, My lord, most of your officials have been killed, besieged, or imprisoned or have abandoned their strongholds and dare not go back. And in some shires, the Scots have appointed and established their own sheriffs and officials, thus no shires properly kept, save for Berwickshire and Roxburghshire." In other words, almost all of the English presence in Scotland was either destroyed or besieged. King Edward sent some Scottish noblemen, who had sworn loyalty to him, to put down the rebellion. Edward's puppets were ineffective. Bands of armed rebels controlled over 90% of the country. Only a massive English army could put out the fire of Scottish independence. And when news of the rebellion reached King Edward, he instructed his two lieutenants in Scotland, the veteran Earl of Surrey and the treasurer of Scotland, Hugh Cressingham, to raise an army from the north of England. They were to march north to give support to the key fortress in Scotland, Stirling, and to deal with Wallace, who was by now besieging another major English-held castle at Dundee. With that, Edward set sail to defeat his enemies in France. In the meantime, news reached Wallace that a huge English army was on the move north. He broke off the siege of Dundee Castle and sent word to Andrew Murray in Inverness to come and join him. The rebel forces linked up at Perth, and together, the two young generals led their troops to Stirling. Wallace is demonstrating his knowledge of war here. You always concentrate your forces to engage the enemy at the most decisive point. But what kind of men was Wallace leading in his Scottish army? One historian provides the details, quote, the majority of recruits were not in any sense experienced military men. The very low incidence of military activity of any kind in Scotland in the preceding 50 years meant that the opportunity to learn the skills and techniques of war had been limited. The most recent Scottish military operation had been the conquest of the Kingdom of Man, which the Scotsmen had taken as easily as a walk in the park. Without doubt, almost all the men recruited by Wallace in 1297 served as spearmen, and virtually all the remainder served as archers, but these archers weren't as effective as the English because the English used long bows and the Scots used the less effective short bow, end quote. Now, the Battle of Stirling Bridge, a very famous battle in Scottish history, took place near a bridge over the Forth River. That stone bridge, built in the late 15th century that's there today, replaced the ancient narrow wooden bridge which was there in the time of Wallace. 
And that's where the battle hinged. That's where it got its name. Recent underwater research has revealed traces of a massive stone pier, which pinpoint the precise site of the ancient bridge, which straddled the 30-meter-wide river diagonally, only a few meters upstream from the present stone bridge that's there today and you can visit today. On the night of September 10th, 1297, both armies arrayed on either side of the river, and the English sent two emissaries to negotiate with Wallace. Lands and wealth, they were offered to Wallace if he would just disband his army and bend the knee to Edward. Here was the chance for a minor knight to become a great lord. Here was a chance for a man to gain great wealth and, ipso facto, beautiful women. But Wallace's knee would never bend. He spit at the offer. One historian had Wallace say, Tell your commander that we are not here to make peace, but to do battle, to defend ourselves and liberate our kingdom. Let them come on, and we shall prove this in their very beards." End quote. The rich, noble emissaries from England looked at each other with gaping mouths. One writer captured the scene. Uh, Sir Wallace, this is a good deal. You should really... Wallace cut the man off. Get to your master, puppet! I'll play with the strings on your corpse in the morning. End quote. There was nothing left to do but fight. The elderly English commander, the Earl of Surrey, who was 66 years old and suffering from failing health, ordered his men across the river in the morning, and then he went back to bed. The next day, the army began crossing to the Scottish side of the river at first light, while the few Scotsmen near the river ran back to their lines. They're coming! They're crossing the river! The English were moving across the bridge unopposed. Soon they would strike at the unyielding Scotsmen on the hill, but then, inexplicably, the English snake began to recoil. They began to withdraw back across the river. The Earl of Surrey hadn't got out of bed until late, and so the men were recalled to wait for him to wake up. Wallace couldn't believe it when he saw it. The English had revealed their intentions and then obligingly drawn off to let Wallace prepare for what he knew was coming. Accordingly, the 6,000 spearmen and 400 archers of the Scottish army were massing on a hill opposite the bridge that we know the English are going to cross, eagerly hoping to meet the English threat as giddy about their position as a five-year-old on Christmas morning. Wallace's 400 archers scanned the bridge for enemy targets. If the English had attacked early, they might have made short work of the Scotsmen defending the hill, but now the Scots army was ready and waiting. There would be no surprises that day. Quickly, the English held a council of war. What should they do? The Scottish puppets wanted the Earl to call off the attack and flank the Scotsmen at a ford in a river a few miles away. It was a good plan, but no one listened to a bunch of ignorant Scotsmen. If they knew anything about what was going on, there wouldn't have been a revolt in the first place. A novelist imagines what happened next. Quote, That's when the treasurer of Scotland, a hugely overweight Englishman, who could be the stunt double for Jabba the Hutt, stood and addressed the war council. There can be no delay. Each day is costing us thousands. We're not paying you to lay around and winch all day. Get over there and drive off this peasant rabble. You better listen to me, because if Edwards comes, you won't hear anything but the sound of your own decapitated head hitting the floor. End quote. A pretty convincing argument, if you ask me. It was a perennial favorite of Mao Zedong and Joseph Stalin. Anyway, pushed by the treasurer and trusting in the innate superiority of the English forces, which always fails, it's always wrong, to underestimate the enemy. And in life, in business, in work, you got some co-worker 
giving you crap, never underestimate them. Never underestimate how petty they can be and how much they desire to get you in trouble. Because there's only so many branches on the top of the tree and all the little monkeys want to get to the top. Friend, I want you to get to the top. You need to watch yourself. Anyway, don't underestimate the enemy. That's what I'm getting at. We've seen this with the French in D&B and Fu, and we've seen it with the British in the Boer War. And now, once again, we're seeing it at Stirling Bridge. The Earl of Surrey ordered his army across the narrow, teetering wooden bridge, and now the English army... I need to tell you, it was comprised of 6,350 infantrymen and 350 horsemen. It took hours just to get half of the English army across, as the narrow wooden bridge was only three horses wide. So, right now, the, at this stage in the battle, no one's fought yet. Half the English army is across this narrow bridge, and the other half is across the river. Wallace almost urinated his pants. As he saw the English lumbering across the flimsy bridge, he pinched himself. This couldn't be real. No one is this stupid. A novelist had him say this, All I have to do is let a large portion of the English cross the bridge and then attack and surround their exposed half, while the other half is still across the river. I can't lose. It was like walking into a casino and playing with the deck flipped open. Knowing every card, the dealer still taking the game seriously, even though his every move is known. Looking at the English advance, Wallace had the foreknowledge of the divine. A four-year-old could have won the battle. Imagine you pursue the most beautiful woman in your town for years. She is coy, dancing around the issue, flirtatious but non-committal. Then one day, like Anastasia Steele in Fifty Shades of Grade, she gets tipsy and agrees to go on a date with you. The date goes well, you hit it off, and she decides to invite you in for the night. Your heart dances. You've lain awake at night, hoping beyond hope for this moment, and then it comes. A smile comes over your visage. Your hands slightly tremble as you feel the delightsome curves of your lover. That is what it was like for William Wallace when he saw the English army spill across that narrow bridge. Wallace was no fool. He had waited for this moment his whole life, and then, when about half the English army had crossed the river, Wallace's cry rang out, Attack! Peter Armstrong picks up the story, quote, the Scotsmen were packed in tight skilltrons, which are spearmen packed in ranks of six men deep. A few hundred archers and two hundred Scots cavalry completed the army, but victory would stand or fall that day on the actions of the Scottish spearmen. At the bottom of the hill, the English cavalry had crossed the river and were impatiently waiting for the infantry to form into line. About a third of the English force were across the river when the entire hill suddenly transformed into a demented Mormon tabernacle choir. The war horns blew, and the men in the skilltron screamed like Confederate soldiers as they stormed down the hill. Contemporary Englishmen said their steel on their spears glinted in the rays of the yellow bright sun. The English vanguard looked at the Scotsmen storming down the hill the way innocent women suddenly become aware of the baseness of men's lust. Simply dumbfounded, the masked spearmen strode forward with grim determination. The skilltrons bristled with iron-shod pikes like malevolent hedgehogs, their banners flying before them. 
They came on steadily at first, with their officers setting the pace and ordering the ranks. Wallace and Murray rode, fully armed now, with their mounted followers at their head. About 1,000 yards separated the two armies, and most of the distance could be covered at a measured pace without the ranks becoming disordered. The best armored among the Scots formed the front ranks of the advancing Skiltrons, and they braced themselves as the first arrows began falling among them, and the men began to fall. At the urgent cry of the signal horns, the long spears were leveled from the charge and the Skiltrons gathered momentum. The bridge was still packed with troops. Others were frantically attempting to deploy in some sort of defensive front alongside those who had crossed earlier. Some were already wavering as the enveloping Scots bore down on them. Neither the stationary horsemen nor the archers and spearmen could withstand the weight and ferocity of the Scottish onslaught. They were outnumbered, outmaneuvered, and thrust back before the Scottish spears. The exit from the bridge was soon in Scottish hands and offered no escape route to the packed mass of panicking troops and, with order and discipline breaking down, the Scots cut a bloody swath through the English making a great slaughter among them. There was no escape. The English who had crossed the river were surrounded on three sides, the needle points of the Scotsmen stabbing all around them. There was no way backwards as the bridge was stuffed with confused foot soldiers. Desperately, Englishmen began to jump into the river and attempt to swim across. They were dragged under by the weight of their own armor, the water spilling into their lungs, their terror-gasping mouths spurting water into the sky like the back of whales. Men's heads bobbed and then slowly sunk under the rushing brown water. The last thing their oxygen-starved brain registered was the murk all around them. Back across the water, the English army was transformed into a pincushion, the Scotsmen stabbing the wide-eyed defenders like they were cattle. The obese treasurer, who had urged the attack, was dragged from his horse and dismembered. The blubbery chunks of his body in trail curled across the muddy earth. His fat head grimaced on the top of a pike, a symbol for what waited the rest of the English in Scotland. Later, after the battle, the treasurer's skin was flayed off and used to make a baldric for Wallace's sword. A leader of the horsemen, named Marmaduke, was the only man who blunted but never came near stemming the Scottish tide. Peter Armstrong explains this great man, quote, Marmaduke watched in dismay as the banners of the king and earl fell beneath the spears of the Scots and realized that the vanguard was lost. He rallied his horsemen, and rather than risk drowning by attempting to swim the river, he led them through the enveloping ranks of the Scots and across their rear towards the bridge. The impetus of the charge of the heavily armored men Bold the Scots aside, and with Marmaduke at their head, they hewed a bloody pathway towards their escape route. At some point, Marmaduke's young nephew was brought down as his horse was killed. He cried out for help as the Scots closed in on him. Marmaduke swung down from his mount and hoisted the lad up behind his squire. Then, remounting, he led them hell for leather for the still intact bridge where he and the exhausted remnants of his force fought their way across to safety. Marmaduke's fighting retreat was the last act of organized resistance. The Scots' victory was complete." End quote. The English commander could only look on in horror as a third of his men were butchered and quartered with all the methodical skill of a meat processing plant. The English defeat was total. However, about 4,000 Englishmen, the ones who never crossed the river, lived to fight another day. They began the slow withdrawal back to England. At the same time, the people of Scotland rallied to Wallace's banner. The English weren't invincible. They could be defeated. Wallace had proved it. He could do it all over again. However, 
Things didn't go perfectly for the Scottish. They never do in war. Andrew Murray, Walsh's co-equal leader of the Scottish army, was mortally wounded in the battle. Now Wallace shared command with no one. He was the sole ruler of Scotland. It wouldn't last long. But he tasted the bittersweet cup of power in a way most men never will. And he used his power too. He took the fight to England himself. A modern historian describes his invasion. Quote, there were some opportunistic cross-border raids immediately after Stirling Bridge. Then, in October, Wallace himself led an army of about 100 horse and 3,000 foot into Northumberland. The raid was a savage and destructive affair marked by atrocities due to the indiscipline of the Scottish troops. They burnt and plundered their way down Tyndale to Corbridge and Hexham where protection money was extorted from the Priory and then moved west against Cumberland and Carlisle. The Scots could not take the well-fortified border stronghold without siege engines, but cooped up the garrison, including Henry Percy's forces, for a month with a large blockading force while they devastated and burnt the country for 30 leagues round. Then, with winter beginning to bite, Wallace withdrew his men back to Scotland." End quote. It was at this time that Wallace began to be called the Guardian of the Realm. In a Latin document from March 1298, he signed the document this way, quote, William Wallace, Knight, Guardian of the Kingdom of Scotland and leader of its armies, in the name of the illustrious Prince John Balliol, by the grace of God, King of Scotland, by consent of the community of that kingdom, and by consent and assent of the nobles of the said kingdom. So that's how William Wallace viewed himself at this time. Meanwhile, the Scottish nobility were horrified by the situation. Many of them held grand estates in both England and Scotland. Something might happen to their harems if this kept up. Most of them were bound by oaths of loyalty to both King Edward and King Balliol. They were desperate to preserve their lands, their wealth, and their families' futures. Wallace... With his wide-eyed, heartfelt fanaticism, was putting all that in jeopardy. At the same time, King Edward shook with anger when he received the message of his army's defeat at Stirling Bridge, swift as a hawk. He concluded the hasty peace with the King of France and crossed back over the channel to secure his rear, to secure his kingdom, to secure his Scotland. It was spring 1298. Already... Edward was massing men for the reinvasion of Scotland, and Wallace's support among his own nobility was tenuous at best. They longed for any stability, even the stability of a tyrant, rather than lose their vast wealth. The young peasant girls they took at will into their bedchambers, the servants who brought them money, the lands they enjoyed. No, Wallace needed to go. On July 3rd, Edward crossed the Tweed River. Now he would teach these hillbillies who their master really was, and he brought with him 12,000 battle-hardened veteran foot soldiers combined with 1,500 mounted knights and still more archers, an army that comprised more than 14,000 men, but this giant army was suffering. They had stopped at Edinburgh, awaiting supplies from ships, ships that never came, only wine made it to the men in the field, which they rivered into their mouths. But this caused the hunger-gnawed men to fight with one another, and in horrible brawls, many men died, including the priest who tried to separate the drunken fighters. King Edward seriously considered withdrawing his army when a messenger arrived on July 21st and told him the Scottish army had been spotted lurking in the forest of Falkirk. Praise God, 
Edwards is reported to have said. He brought his Titanic forces to meet Wallace's small band of freedom fighters. It was a battle the world will never forget. It was a battle called Fall Kirk. Now, William Wallace wasn't leading a band of thugs on July 22nd, 1298. He had planned for this battle, too, and had gathered almost 8,000 spearmen to his ranks, coupled with 500 horsemen. In addition, Wallace had 1,500 long bowmen. Wallace's Scotsmen waited for the English at the top of a hill. It was a good position. A small valley separated the two armies. Wallace had a formidable force, but Wallace's 10,000 Scotsmen were still outnumbered by Edward's more than 14,000 men. It is said that Edwards hesitated at first, but his advisors, remembering the fate of the slow-moving English at Stirling Bridge, tripped over themselves to demand that Edwards attack before the Scottish prepared to meet them, and Edwards did. He called for the heavy horsemen to break the Scottish line. Wallace saw them maneuvering in the muddy valley in front of his horsemen and screamed this battle cry to his soldiers, I've brought you to the party! Now dance if you can, men! The Scots were organized into a straight line parallel to the crest of the hill. The English cavalry, organized into four groups called battles, attacked around the flanks of the line without infantry support. So the English cavalry alone are coming around both the left and the right of the Scottish main body line. But none of the spearmen in the ranks could see what the English cavalry were doing. You would hear the sound of hooves start low like the rumble of a distant thunder. Then you felt the ground tremble. Hell, you saw the ground tremble. But to the men standing in the front of the skilltrons, you couldn't see an English horse. That's when the men in the front heard the clap of battle, coming not from their front but from their rear. One group of the English horsemen was clashing with the Scottish horsemen behind the Scottish right flank. But there were still three other groups of English horses running around unchecked. Where were they? Well, one of them linked up with the first group and slammed into the Scottish cavalry that was already engaged with another group of English horsemen. Now the Scottish mounted knights, outclassed and outnumbered, began to flee. A few of the stoutest men joined the Skilltrons to die with their brothers. The rest fled the field. That's when the English knights, on horseback, as fast as the bars of a mousetrap, began to fly down the Scottish line parallel to the Skilltrons, but behind them as fast as a queen flies into check. And they trampled down the Scottish archers like they weren't even there. They were pulling the English army apart like a honey bun. The archers' commander, Sir John Stewart, deliberately dismounted to die with his men, and the English horsemen willingly obliged him. What actually happened is lost to history, but one modern writer described the scene like this, quote, The line of the English horse walled at them, the way a modern dump truck moves a wall to compact trash. Sir Steward nodded his head knowingly, dismounted, slapped the rear of his horse, and drew his two-handed broadsword. He stood at the front of the main body of archers as a scattering of his men fled, their eyes terror gaping open, their mouths gasping at their last choking breaths of oxygen on the planet. That's when Stuart told the men around him to fire their bows. One panic-racked archer shot back, but, but their armor's too strong. It, it won't stop them. No, it won't, said Sir John. But fire on them anyway. It's not about winning. It's about striking at the impossible. That's all every nation really is. A wishful strike of a flint. Sometimes the fire catches. Sometimes it doesn't. But we strike the fire nonetheless. And a few of the Scottish archers took heart and they let their arrows fly. 
and a few of the cavalrymen slowed and retreated, but most did not. On the wall of death came. The steel-tipped English lances glittered in the sunlight like a beautiful prom dress. The earth quivered under the approaching horse. John made his sword ready, but before he could even swing one blow, he was impaled, his stomach hooked through with a lance. The blow took him off his feet, lifted him before, bringing him down to be trampled under the hooves of scores of 2,500 pounds of speeding heavy horse. They found his body layer smashed and broken, pieces ripped off and commingled with the mud. Thus passed John Stewart to his eternal reward. He died fighting with noble acceptance. He died for Scotland, almost all the Scottish archers died with him. End quote. Men's faces were hooved into the ground. The ill-armored archers were impaled on the lances of the horsemen. Few were spared. Most ran after John Stewart was trampled down. You would have run too. So would I. To stand against the English horse was unthinkable. The archers had no defense. Now the Scottish Skiltron stood alone. Finally, the enemy came into the spearmen's view. Line upon line of English infantrymen advanced across the valley floor below the spearmen. But that was the last thing on the spearmen's minds, because behind them, they heard the dying screams of untold numbers of their archers. They heard the death metal drumming hooves beating their fellow countrymen into the rocky earth. They heard and they even felt the men die through the tremors of the earth, but they didn't see a thing. You smelled it. Your body instinctively knew it was already over. The battle already lost. Massacre was in the air like water vapor before a downpour. Still the Skiltrons held formation and waited for the inevitable. Men began to judge the duration of their life in minutes. Think about it. What if you pretty much knew when you were going to die and it was only 30 minutes away? What would you think about? I don't mind telling you I would think about the beauty of my young wife. I would think about my children, the smell of my daughter's golden hair, her blue eyes inches from mine telling me about her day. I would think about my son's riotous laughter, and then I would greet the enemy for my last dance. And so it was for the Scottish spearmen. They were torn apart the way a grandmaster chess player takes his opponent apart, piecemeal, methodical, one pawn at a time. And the English knights were ready for the dance. They tore into the porcupine-like Skiltron walls, but they never penetrated. The lines dented, but they never broke. Chunks of horse flesh splayed apart on the Scottish spears. Finally, realizing they couldn't break the Scottish line alone, the English cavalry withdrew to watch the carnage and mop up any stragglers once the final break came. Now the English infantry formed into battle formations, but still did not yet engage the Scots. They waited in the wings, a chorus ready to enter the Greek play and demonstrate the comedy of human life. It was the archers who engaged the Skiltrons. They fanned out in front of the Scottish hedgehogs all along the line, a parallelogram of death. The Scotsmen, bunched together in their Skiltron hedgehog formations, were the perfect target for the English archers. The archers took their shots with leisure. The English longbowmen had a guaranteed hit, and under the blistering hail of death, gaps began to appear in the Skiltrons and in the battle line itself. That's when the English mounted knights saw the holes in the Scottish lines and they bolted into them, running into the spear wall gaps like dogs who haven't seen their masters in weeks. They burst into the tootsie center of the Skiltron pop, slaughtering the spearmen just as easily as you walk a mile on a treadmill. It's still work, but it's easy work. 
Now the Skiltrons were broken and the Scotsmen degenerated into unorganized and unthinking masses. Every man for himself, individual spearmen, broke and made for the forest behind the former battle line. The remaining English infantry and cavalry mopped up all resistance. The sun set on the field and Scotland was no longer an independent nation. From this day forth, she would always be intertwined with English occupation. And it all started on the fields of Falkirk. William Wallace survived to fight another day, but the Scottish losses were horrendous. The thought of further large-scale resistance was unthinkable, but Wallace was a man of true hatred. He would not relent. He would fight on with five men or five thousand. It didn't matter to him. And so Wallace carried on the struggle in a grueling guerrilla campaign. He achieved little, but he tied down thousands of English occupiers. He annoyed them. They could have been drinking mead by a fire, resting with a maid by a river, but instead they haunted the woods, hunting for the fox-like Wallace. Hunting, but never finding. But what specifically did Wallace do after his bitter defeat at Falkirk? The answer is we don't know. It's lost to history. Magnus Magnuson explains, quote, Occasional written references about Wallace, bolstered by persistent legend and folklore, suggest that in the aftermath of defeat, Wallace still ranged the country with a hard core of surviving troops, inflicting whatever damage he could on the English garrisons left by King Edward to try to enforce his will. When the king returned to England in October, he left Scotland nominally under English control, but the control was more apparent than real. The English held and garrisoned the major castles in the southern half of Scotland, but in the north their presence was basically negligible." With Wallace gone from the inner circles of power, the leadership of Scotland was devolved to a series of guardians. The resistance fight was carried on in a number of key areas with considerable success, but none of the combinations of guardians worked. In May 1301, a new sole guardian would be appointed, Sir John de Souls, a veteran patriot, an experienced diplomat, with a steady and neutral head on his shoulders. The Scottish War, as the English called it, was at a stalemate. Furthermore, in the autumn of 1301, John Balliol was released from papal custody and returned to his ancestral estates in Picardy in France. The return of Balliol to the throne now seemed like it could actually happen. It wasn't just a pipe dream. This must have looked deeply ominous to Robert Bruce. The restoration of Balliol would have meant a restoration of his enemy's power in the land and the end of his own hopes to ever achieve the throne. In January 1302, he suddenly defected and went over to the English side. His submission was well received by King Edward. He was equally concerned about a possible return by John Balliol, and Bruce seems to have been given a promise that Edward would support his claim to the throne. This was the start of the rot, the decay of Scotland's resistance. It was largely due to the withdrawal of French and papal support for the Scottish cause. In July 1302, the French king, Philippe the Fair, was shocked when his mighty army was massacred in Belgium by a Flemish army who deployed their infantry and skilltrons, much as Wallace had done at Falkirk, but with much greater success. From now on, Philippe was to have no time to spare for Scotland, and in May 1303 he signed a peace treaty with England, from which, contrary to all his previous promises, Scotland was excluded. His promises were as empty as the oaths made by unmarried on the cusp of a consummation of lust. You can say anything. Talk is cheap. It's action that proves love and action that proves allies. There was no action from France. You Europeans listening to this should remember this when you trust in alliances to keep you safe. 
Alliances are important and useful, but the true primordial function of the state is to protect its subjects. You should make every attempt to protect yourself. And during this troubled time, William Wallace had traveled abroad trying to rally support from the various kings of Europe to help the cause of Scotland. He met with little success, and in 1303 Wallace was back in Scotland and Edwards was planning a second invasion that would crush the Scottish threat forever. Edward himself arrived with the main army in May, and there was to be no respite for the Scots, no famous victories to halt the unstoppable advance of the English military machine. Castles and strongholds fell to Edward all over Scotland. Edwards was relentless. He pushed north past Perth, all the way to the coast, and resistance continued in the south of Scotland, but the Scottish cause was becoming more and more hopeless. At the end of the summer campaigning, Edward did not return to England, but stayed for the winter. He was determined to keep up the pressure on the Scots to submit to his authority. For the Scots, the idea of peace was beginning to look like a tempting option after long and wearisome years of perpetual warfare. After much preliminary parlaying and negotiation, the end finally came on February 3, 1304, when the largest band of Scottish resistance surrendered on behalf of the community of Scotland, but not unconditionally. The terms agreed by Edward showed unexpected leniency. The leading magnates were allowed to retain their lands and positions in Scotland with one or two token sentences of temporary exile, and some were even appointed sheriffs. As for William Wallace, King Edward's mercy to the leader of the Scots resistance stopped short at forgiving him of his past sins. There are some indications that Edward offered him some sort of guarantee that his life would be spared if he surrendered himself unconditionally to the king's will, but if so, Wallace can only have refused. In March 1304, the king convened a parliament at St. Andrews at which 129 Scottish landowners took Edward as their liege lord. And a declaration of outlawry was passed on William Wallace. Now only Stirling Castle remained defiant, held by Sir William Oliphant in the name of King John Balliol. Edward made his preparations for the siege with meticulous care. He gathered a huge collection of siege engines and an impressive arsenal of lead, iron, crossbows, and bolts. The siege began on April 22, 1304, and lasted for three months. Every day, the mighty siege engines, led by a monster named Warwolf, battered at the castle walls. Lethal bombs of Greek fire showered down on the defenders. Despite all this formidable firepower, however, Stirling Castle only surrendered on July 24th when the garrison ran out of food. Its leaders were publicly humiliated, but their lives were spared. After Edwards left the country, Robert the Bruce dutifully took part in Edwards' plans for a new administration for Scotland as a province of England. In September 1305, this would be formalized in a new constitution with an English viceroy. One piece of important business had been left outstanding when King Edward left Scotland, however, the matter of William Wallace. On the very day after the siege of Stirling ended, Edward ordered the people of Scotland, quote, to exert themselves until 20 days after Christmas to capture Sir William Wallace and hand him over to the king, who will watch to see how each one conducts himself so that he can do most favor to whoever captures Wallace with regard to exile or legal claims or expiation of past sins, end quote. Wallace was now clearly marked as public enemy number one, the object of an intensely personal and vindictive royal vendetta. In addition 
to the pressure he had put on the leading Scottish nobles, King Edward suborned a number of other Scotsmen with tempting bribes. He also put a price of 100 pounds on Wallace's head. For Edward, Wallace symbolized the spirit of Scotland's resistance, which could only be finally broken if the Scots themselves turned in the already legendary folk hero to face the king's punishment. William Wallace was now on his own, and his capture and inevitable death could only be a matter of time. But Wallace would never lead another rebellion. Wallace would never see his country free, what Edward could not do, what England could not do, what tens of thousands of English soldiers and informants could not do, one traitor did for money. How many saints and how many innocent men have been betrayed for money? Countless. Countless. And so it was with Wallace. Magnus Magnuson sifts through the various legends and stories and provides this history of Wallace's capture. Quote, what is incontrovertible is that a payment of 40 Scots mercs was made to a servant who spied out William Wallace, along with a further payment of 60 mercs to be given to the others who were at the taking of the said William to be shared by them. The taking of William Wallace happened late on the evening of August 3rd. Wallace was lurking in a forest when he was surprised by English soldiers in an isolated building. He was overpowered and taken to Dumbarton Castle in fetters, a nobleman transformed into a slave. From Dumbarton, he was conveyed under heavy escort secretly and by night south to Carlisle. From Carlisle, Wallace was taken on a triumphal 17-day journey, his hands bound behind his back and his feet roped beneath the horse's belly. Every mile of the journey was agony. The pre-torture foreplay before the consummation. In every town and village, the local people turned out to stare and jeer at the shackled ogre who had plagued their king for so many years. The contemporary English Lanarkost Chronicle was exultant. Quote, the vilest doom is fitted for thy crimes. Justice demands that thou should die three times. Thou pillager of many a sacred shrine, butcher of thousands, threefold death be thine. So shall the English from thee gain relief. Scotland, be wise and choose a nobler chief. End quote. And when the procession reached London, the throng was so great that it could not reach the tower. The next morning, August 23rd, Wallace was taken to Westminster Hall and accompanied by a host of civic dignitaries and soldiers. Wallace was charged with treason, murder, spoliation of property, robbery, arson, sacrilege, atrocities, and horrible enormities of every kind. He had driven out all the wardens and servants of the Lord King. He had convened Scottish parliaments. He had tried to persuade the Scottish nobles to not submit to the lordship of their own king, and instead to convey their lordship to the King of France and to help that king destroy the realm of England. The prisoner was not expected to plead. But according to an eyewitness at the trial, although Wallace may have acknowledged most of the crimes for which he was charged, he denied that he was guilty of treason on the irrefutable ground that he had never sworn personal allegiance or done homage to King Edward of England. The court's argument was that John Balliol's surrender of the Kingdom of Scotland in 1296 had made all Scots automatically vassals of the English king, but argument was irrelevant. King Edward was determined to make a public example of Wallace and to have him suffer the barbarously brutal execution meted out to all traitors. Sir John de Sagrave was given the honor of reading out the preordained sentence for Wallace. He was to be hanged, drawn, and quartered. This is the text of his sentence, quote, That the said William Wallace, for the manifest sedition that he practiced against the Lord King himself, 
by feloniously contriving and acting with a view to his death and to the abasement and subversion of his royal dignity, by bearing a hostile banner against his liege lord in war to the death, shall be drawn from the palace of Westminster to the Tower of London, and from the Tower to Aldgate, and so through the midst of the city. End quote. As soon as sentence had been pronounced, Wallace was taken outside and stripped naked and then bound to a hurdle face up. And thus he was dragged through the crowded, jeering streets by ropes tied to two horses. The screaming crowd spit on him, jeered at him. The last faces he ever saw were faces of hate. It was a hideous journey, an especially long route of more than four miles, in order to expose the prisoner to the maximum insult and indignity. The skin on his naked back and buttocks became fresh ground beef. I want you to think of this man suffering the next time you throw a burger on the grill. Such is the price our ancestors paid for us to have our nations. The countless sacrifices, the tortures and the screams, the widow's tears, the orphaned children, such is the price they all paid for you and for me. Listen to me, Australia. Listen to me, New Zealand, and you too, Canada, and you too, New England. Hear my words, all the world. This is the birth of the security you take for granted. This is the price that was paid. And now the long-drawn-out execution began, the triple death. First, for the robberies, homicides, and felonies he committed in the realm of England and in the land of Scotland, Wallace was hanged by the neck to the very point of strangulation before he was cut down half alive from the gallows. After he had regained consciousness, the torment continued. His genitals were cut off and he was drawn like a chicken. His intestines were pulled from his belly, then his lungs and liver, and finally his heart when the long agony finally came to an end. His innards were then ceremonially burned by the executioner. That was the second death. For the measureless turpitude of his deeds towards God and the Holy Church, only then was his lifeless body decapitated for his outlawry, the third death. What remained of his body was now quartered, butchered into four parts, and the quarters were distributed to different parts of the country for exposure on gibbets in Newcastle, Berwick, Stirling, and Perth as a warning and a deterrent to all that pass and behold them. His head was placed on a spike and hoisted above London Bridge. Through the very public humiliation of a traitor's death, King Edward must have believed that he would not only exterminate his enemy, but extirpate his very existence. He was to be disappointed, for in the event, he achieved the very opposite. He created a martyr. It was hardly a coincidence that when a new Scottish Parliament was held in 1997, the date chosen for the vote was September 11th, 700 years to the day since Wallace's spectacular victory over the English army at Stirling Bridge on September 11th, 1297.
On the facade of St. Bartholomew's Hospital, near where Wallace was executed, there's a plaque which reads, To the immortal memory of Sir William Wallace, Scottish patriot, born in circa 1270 AD, who from the year 1296 fought dauntlessly in defense of his country's liberty and independence in the face of fearful odds and great hardship, being eventually betrayed and captured, brought to London and put to death near this spot, on 23rd August 1305, his example of heroism and devotion inspired those who came after him to win victory from defeat, and his memory remains for all time a source of pride and honor and inspiration to his countrymen, end quote. Flowers are continuously placed there. He drank the full cup of sorrow, and he has the full admiration of his countrymen. What they could do to remember him, the Scottish people have done. There's nothing more and nothing better I can say here. And that's another one for me. I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and I'm thankful for you listening in. I'm thankful for you writing in, and I'm thankful and honored to be able to recount the deeds of William Wallace. And this is just the beginning. Next month, we're continuing the story. When we recount the revolt of Robert the Bruce in the War for Scottish Independence, I'll be here regular as the moon itself. I hope you'll join me. I'll tell you to your face, no podcast host appreciates you listening more than I do. No one cares more about these stories than I do. My wife trips over books when she walks across the bedroom. They teeter and tower on the nightstands like a game of Jenga. I don't do this for money. These stories are worth more than any money. Pearls bought with a great price. So I'll be here tomorrow and the next day and the day after that with more pain, with more blood, with more. Battlecast. <laughs>